Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Faith, Chaos and Carnage by Graham Tomlin One afternoon in that week after the Queen died back in September, I spent a short while watching the live video footage from Westminster Hall, the people filing past the Queen's coffin as it lay in state. Ordinary members of the public, after their nine-hour wait in the queue, stopped for their precious few seconds in front of the coffin before being ushered on to allow others to have their moment. It was clear that many of them were not quite sure what to do. Some just stood silently, but most felt they needed to do something. Some bowed or curtsied, others seemed to utter a quiet prayer, others crossed themselves in a slightly awkward fashion, as if it was something they weren't really used to doing. It was clear that people needed some kind of gesture of respect, And it was significant how many turned some kind of religious action to do that, whether bowing ahead, signing the cross or muttering a few words of prayer. Throughout that week, at every turn, from the ceremony to recognise the new king, to the lying in state, to the funeral itself, everything seemed to happen in a context of Christian prayer. They were all deeply religious ceremonies and came in for surprisingly little resistance despite our increasingly secular frame of mind as a nation. It was as if, at that moment, in that difficult week, it felt as if the Christian faith held the nation's grief for a short while. Having taken many funerals in my time, I recognised the same dynamic in more ordinary circumstances. Many people who maybe have a dim recollection of Christian faith from their background find the rituals and ceremonies of the church, a hymn vaguely remembered from school, a vicar saying some prayers, the rich and hopeful words of resurrection in the presence of death, a valuable handrail to hold on to at a time of deep instability and profound change. It might seem that this outbreak of religious observance at the death of the monarch was just a temporary thing before life returned to normal, but perhaps it pointed to something much more significant. It always feels a little odd with the beginnings of spring, daffodils and sprouting flowers in the garden, but Good Friday is the bleakest moment of the Christian year. It is the moment when we remember how, for Christians at least, the most complete human being who ever walked the planet, Jesus of Nazareth, was executed in a huge miscarriage of justice. If this really was the day we killed God, it was the darkest moment in human history. Good Friday is followed by Holy Saturday, the day when Jesus' body lay still and decaying in a cold grave, and everything seemed to be at an end. Of course, we know that resurrection and the joy of it was just around the corner, but they didn't know that on the first Good Friday. And you have to go through Good Friday and even sit with the devastation of it all through Holy Saturday 
before you get to the joy. Maybe that is part of the genius of Christianity. Its ability to hold people in moments of grief and pain when there aren't any easy answers to be found. Nick Cave's recent book, co-authored with Sean O'Hagan, has as its title not the traditional trio of faith, hope and love, but faith, hope and carnage. The book explores Cave's rediscovery of faith in part through the tragic death of his 15-year-old son, Arthur, and the capacity of faith to hold and sustain him in the middle of carnage, despair and tragedy. As Rowan Williams put it in his recent interview with Nick Cave, the book reveals the way in which faith, without ever giving a plain comforting answer, offers resources to look at what is terrible without despair or evasion. The Christian understanding of evil is not that it is good dressed up in dowdy clothing. It does not tell us to believe that somehow premature death, cancer or childhood leukaemia are somehow good for us. It says that they have no point because that is the nature of evil, that it is pointless. It has no meaning because it is the absence of meaning. It has no purpose because it is the absence of purpose. That is why Christians gladly say they have no neat answer to the problem of evil, because evil is the absence of answers. It is nonsense because it makes no sense. Instead, we believe not because we have found an answer to the problem of suffering, but despite the fact that we haven't. We believe because we have heard a more compelling story that doesn't make sense of everything else the unlikely and sometimes scarcely believable hope of resurrection, which makes sense of so much else. Even the mysterious rebirth of nature that emerges from the seeming death of winter into new life in the spring. Only unlike pagans, Christians see the natural rhythms of the world as an echo of the central story of the resurrection of Jesus, rather than the other way around. Christians see in the events of the first Easter the turning point of history, that when we tried to kill God on the first Good Friday, he did not stay dead, but rose again, bringing with him the promise that those who face death or tragedy hand in hand with Christ will somehow come through the carnage and the chaos with a life and a future. Of course, when you're in the middle of the pain, it's hard to see that. When you're in agony, you don't need an explanation. You just need someone to hold you. And that's exactly what Christianity offers. Someone to hold you. Someone who has been through the worst that life and history can throw at him and knows the worst that can happen. It offers the presence of God in the Jesus who is no stranger to pain. And it says over and over again in the Bible, I will never leave you or forsake you. It is, as Sean Brooks explains in her excellent review of the film Alleluia on Seen and Unseen, what we will all need in the end of our lives. Someone to be with us. Christian faith holds out the hope of resurrection. Easter Sunday does come round after Good Friday 
But even when you're stuck on Saturday, waiting for a Sunday that never seems to come, when resurrection is hard to believe in, when all around you is carnage and chaos, you're invited to hold tightly and determinedly to that mysterious presence that stands with you in the darkness, whether you feel it or you don't, while you wait for the light to dawn. Life Before Death by Julie Canlis Easter is not about the Easter Bunny. Easter is about the paradox that we all try to skirt. Only in death is there life. But Easter is not just about metaphorical death and rebirth, at least not for Christians. Christians don't believe that Jesus died for our self-esteem, nor that he raised an idea of himself. As Thomas Lynch, undertaker and poet in Midwest America, reminds us, Do you think they would have changed the calendar for that? Done the Crusades, burned witches? Easter was a body and a blood thing. No symbols, no euphemisms, no half measures. Christians believe that Jesus' body died, ceased breathing, flatlined for three days. And then, in myth-like fashion of the dying and rising God, this human being, who lived at certain GPS coordinates and had DNA from his mother, was given his life back, not resuscitated, but resurrected. Yes, reader, Christians believe this. Who are we without our bodies? When people die, Christians insist that their body isn't just a shell of the real person. No, their body still is the person. That's why cremation didn't catch on in the Christian West until recently. And even so, your local priest might turn up their nose if you want to distribute the ashes into jars to be divided between the grandkids. Often, as soon as a person dies, our impulse is to insist, oh, she's not there. This is because our culture is body-obsessed when we are living and body-denying when we are dead. As Professor John Baer, a University of Aberdeen specialist in thinking about death, observes, we want to live like hedonists and to die like Platonists. Easter presents a counter-narrative here. Our bodies have meaning. Jesus' body has meaning. In reliving the events of Holy Week, all eyes are on Jesus' body. And Jesus' body is doing some very physical actions, like healing bodies, raising bodies, touching unclean bodies, washing feet. And then it is his turn to have his body ravaged by arrest, torture, sleeplessness, betrayal and execution. All eyes are not on the idea, but on the body of Jesus. So much so that they put guards at the tomb so that there could be no more monkey business about this man's body. It might seem peculiar to us that Christianity, infamous for its historically mixed relationship to the body, is centred on one man's body. Ancient Christians spoke poetically that the tomb that held Jesus' body became a womb. In his death, 
in the absolute silence of death. Jesus chose to share deadness with us. That this was the essence of his work. That his work could only be accomplished by surrendering, doing nothing. And that in doing nothing, he undoes the great nothing that threatens each one of us. Almost everything we fear, big and small, is somehow connected to a fear of death in one form or another. It's not death per se, but the fear of death that enslaves us, says an early Christian preacher in Rome. And so Easter stands at that pivot point between fear of death and life. Christians celebrate Easter as the day the world tilted, where death no longer has the final say. But it's something we can now use to our advantage. In fact, life begins to break in precisely through death. This is only because, as James Allison once said in an Easter sermon, he entered into death and made it untoxic. And so, strangely, Christians embrace death. We paraded on crosses through the streets. We painted on our tombs, over our meeting houses, wear it on our chests. Because in embracing death, and the even more enslaving fear of death, we defeated. Because of this belief, ancient Christians flung themselves at lions. They endured the agony of torture. They sanctified suffering. They also practiced small, unnoticed, little deaths of that great overlord, the ego. Not because suffering or death is good or to be sought, but because death and suffering have been transformed into portals. Even in baptism, with oblivious babies being christened in frilly white dresses, we are dipping them defiantly into the waters of death and waging war on death. This is the mystery of Easter. This is why every Sunday is called a little Easter, because even as we shuffle into that old stone church, something outlandish is being proclaimed. Death is not a friend, but neither is it to be feared. The worst has already happened. Now we can get on with living. The question is not, is there life after death? But is there life before death? And here is the final kicker. Christian orthodoxy proclaims that Jesus still has his body. Not every Christian would insist on this, but it has been central to the tradition for two millennia. Easter isn't just a mythical story of the paradigmatic victory of life over death. Paul talked about it as a complete reversal, that instead of death swallowing life, Jesus' embodied life swallows up all death. Christians believe that he is alive and well and in some kind of body transfigured in Christian slang, pouring out blessing on all embodiment. This isn't a body that is somewhere floating above us in the clouds, but is an embodied person raised as their whole life narrative into eternity, as one recognisable life. Resurrection is not the hope of our joining Jesus in the clouds, 
But of this same raising of our whole lives into life itself. This is called putting on immortality, like a coat. Where everything from our past, even scars like Jesus still had, is integrated into one recognisable life. This is the Christian hope of Easter. As we live in the interim, no longer fearing, but using death for dear life. When Creation and Justice Converge by N.T. Wright What on earth might the Easter story have to say about our climate catastrophe? What does this ancient story mean to us today, who know that the universe is 14 billion years old, and that according to the best predictions, one day entropy will have its way with our world, leading to the universe either cooling down as it expands, or rushing back together as gravity reasserts itself? The big chill or the big crunch? And what more urgently might it mean in a world where we have woken up not only to man-made climate change, but also to frightening levels of toxic pollution in our seas and in the atmosphere. John's Gospel is one of the sources of that ancient story, and the way the author tells it gives us an answer. Like Shakespeare, John does nothing by accident. The way the author introduces the story of Easter reaches far beyond the central fact of Jesus rising again from the dead. John's point is that with that extraordinary event, a new creation is launched. And that means hope, not just for individual humans, but for all creation. On the first day of the week, very early, while it was still dark. That's how John begins the story. Twenty chapters earlier, at the beginning of his book, he deliberately echoed the start of the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the word. He has told his story in a great sequence of seven signs, representing, as it were, the week of creation itself. Now, with Jesus' resurrection, a new week is beginning. The eighth day of creation, if you like. It takes everyone by surprise. At the time... Many Jewish people had longed and prayed for God's new day to dawn. But nobody had imagined it would look like this. A young Jewish prophet announcing that it was time for God to become king at last, being brutally executed by the ruling authorities and then rising again from the dead. The hope of resurrection cherished by many Jews at the time was the hope for all God's people to be given new bodies to share in God's new world the world in which heaven and earth would at last become one. Nobody imagined that this might happen in advance, as it were, to one person ahead of time. But by the time John writes his gospel, he has reflected long and hard on what it all means. When he says, on the first day of the week, which he repeats a little later, just in case we missed it, he is pointing to the truth that Paul expressed when he wrote that if anyone belongs to the Messiah... There is a new creation. With Jesus and then with his followers, we see a microcosm that the new creation has been launched. This truth, central to the early Christians, has long been obscured by the influx of Greek philosophy into Christian thinking. 
for Plato and those Christians who looked to him to help explain their faith. The point of it all was not to renew the present creation, but to leave it behind. They suppose, as many Christians do to this day, that the aim of their faith was to go to heaven after they died, where they would at last see God. But the central story of the Bible, stretching back into Israel's scriptures, but focused now on the story of Jesus, is that heaven was supposed to come to earth. That, after all, is what Jesus himself taught his followers to pray. The point was that not we or our souls would go and live with God. The point was that God would come and live with us. The God in question is the creator God. His aim, emphasised repeatedly in the Bible, is to renew his good creation, flooding it with his presence as the waters cover the sea. That is the biblical hope quite different from that of Plato and his followers. St Paul insists at the climax of his greatest letter that this will happen through a powerful, convulsive, fresh action of God. All creation, he says, is groaning like a woman going into labour, awaiting the new world which is to be born. And he sees Jesus' followers as themselves groaning in their present suffering. A majority of Christians in Paul's world, just like a significant number in our own day, were being persecuted for their faith. And Paul encourages them to see that suffering as part of the larger cosmic labour pains. But then, he says, God's own spirit is also groaning within us, so that the new world which is to be born will come by the same divine agency that raised Jesus from the dead. In fact, Paul's claim could be summarised that way. God will do for the whole creation at the last what he did for Jesus at Easter. The message of the resurrection isn't just about God rewarding Jesus for his own terrible suffering, nor is it simply about there being hope beyond death for his followers. It is about new creation, a new world in which we are all invited to share, not just eventually, but already in the present. Looking at the evidence at the present state of the world, it might seem indeed that the promise of new creation is just a fantasy. But the message of Jesus' resurrection was never designed to fit into the expectations people already had. Everybody knew perfectly well that dead people don't rise. The Jews believed that one day all God's people would be raised because they believed in two things about God. First, that he had made creation and made it good. Second, that he was committed to putting right everything that had gone wrong. Creation and justice converge at this point, resurrection and new creation. But Jesus' resurrection, bursting into the world unexpectedly, like an important guest arriving several hours early when the family's all still asleep, adds another dimension to this. In Jesus, God himself has come forward in time to meet his tired and groaning world halfway. When the early Christians tell the story, they indicate that this is above all else an act of love, of rescuing, of recreating love. And that love invites an answering love, which takes the form both of faith itself and of allegiance, personal commitment. It takes basically the same faith to believe that God will one day renew the whole creation, flooding it with his glorious presence, as it takes to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that faith is awakened again and again as people hear the news about Jesus 
and realised that it is a message of love. The love of the Creator God for his wounded and weary world. With that faith and that love, there comes as well a new vocation. If Jesus represents the long-term hope of God's people arriving unexpectedly in advance in the present time, then part of the point is to equip people who follow him with his own spirit so that they can be agents of new creation even in the present time. That means a vocation to be small working models of new creation, to engage in advance in the tasks of creation care and renewal, and to encourage those working to address the major challenges of global warming and pollution. We are meant to bring into the world such a measure of justice and beauty as we can, to model in communal and personal life what the Creator God always intended and what will come to pass in the ultimate new creation. We are meant to be people of hope, not just people who are motivated by the personal hope of sharing God's new world, but people through whom that hope comes true in the present time, in a thousand living ways, all of them anticipations of, and hence signposts towards, that final new creation. Catch Madge's Search for the Unseen by Daniel Kim I was standing in a coffee shop queue one morning when I fell into a conversation with a student behind me. I won't bore you with the small talk pleasantries, because one way or another we happened upon the topic of magic, as one does. Apparently, he was increasingly and very sincerely becoming more open to the possibility of supernatural magic in the world. Weird. He then proceeded to tell me that he's been practising casual magic. Naturally, with internal eyebrows raised, I asked him what casual magic was. According to my new friend, it's when you see small moments of magic in the trivial moments of life. Little flashes of enchantment that lift your spirits and points you to something more. He was saying how he's increasingly found it more important to find things to be grateful for in the mundane moments of the day. Seemed to me a strangely Christian thing to say. I also thought it was a very mature thing to say and a lovely thing to hear on a Tuesday morning. But then he proceeded to tell me that you can shorten it to Cadge Madge, which might be the most gent thing I've ever heard. That broke me. You might be feeling underwhelmed, like I was. I was slightly hoping to get an insight into some strange microculture of contemporary pagans muttering incantations under their breath throughout the day, or a crew of David Blaine megafans practising casual magic on unsuspecting pedestrians. Turns out, Cadge Madge is a very familiar concept dressed up in new clothes. We all know what this is referring to. A swim in the river on a summer's day. A foggy night turning streetlights into mystical balls of fire. A worn-out family at a funfair sitting on the ground looking tired but content. Or even a stray sunbeam cast on a 1970s woodchip wall while you're lamenting on the loo about the lack of toilet paper. Yes, even that last one. In a previous life, I was a photographer 
and still fancy myself as a competent amateur nowadays. These are all my favourite cadge-madge moments I've captured in the last year. For what it's worth, my favourite kind of photography is the art of capturing hashtag cadge-madge. Instagram aside, writers, poets, mystics and philosophers have all written about this experience in different ways. We have Mac Davis's song Stop and Smell the Roses, or travel writer Cheryl Strayed's Put Yourself in the Way of Beauty. If you're the corporate type, I'm sure you've seen the habit of gratitude lying around on team building days. Although I can't help but think this is a barely veiled threat to stop complaining about your boss. Hmm. If you want to get slightly pretentious, German philosopher Dietrich von Hildebrand enjoyed writing about the poetry of life, while James Joyce wrote about the epiphanies of the everyday. Recently, in the 21st century streams of psychology and neuroscience, Dacher Keltner has written about the quiet profundity of everyday life. In his book, Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. For Keltner, these moments of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding are essential to our happiness and even our cardiovascular system. They also make us more selfless, relaxed and more creatively inspired. So wherever you are on the romantic cynic spectrum, a healthy dose of awe in your life is probably a good idea. But there's something I love about the new packaging of Cadge Madge. I think that's for two specific reasons. The first is that the phrase is fun. We like to make things serious and complicated, but these moments often confront us in little flashes of joy, warmth and whimsy. And the language we use to express that should be equally joyful, warm and whimsical. The epiphany of the everyday doesn't quite do it for me. Secondly, I like Cadge Madge because it's brave enough to recognise that these moments might be something outside of ourselves and our normal experience breaking into our world. Now, I'm sure most Cadge Madgers aren't using the word magic seriously, but my friend in the cafe was, at the very least, using it to express something spiritual and real going on. This matters. Because if we drill down to it, what exactly is going on when we experience these moments? Perhaps some of us, when push comes to shove, would want to interiorise and psychologise it. It's all happening inside our minds and we're simply projecting deeper meaning onto the world around us. We might think we're observing something mystical and transcendent out there, but that's ultimately an illusion. Kajmaj, however, says that maybe there really is something going on out there, an unseen realm, and we're getting a taste of it. It's not just happening inside our brains. We're encountering something real, but just out of reach. Ultimately, we have to ask this question. Is all of this just sentimental romanticism, or is it a profound moment of clarity? Christians see Kajmaj moments as flashes of the beauty and character of God. They are moments of spiritual encounter. But for the Christian, 
These moments are not just warm fuzzies or general vague senses of awe and romantic transcendence. They tell us something real about the world. The Bible and Christian history is full of cadge-madge, but they are seen as specific moments of clarity and knowledge. The heavens declare the glory of God, claims the songwriter in Psalm 19. Jesus himself appealed to these moments to say something specific about God. Look at the birds in the air. They don't sow or reap, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Tim Callistos Ware, the English bishop of the Eastern Orthodox Church who died last year, wrote that the whole universe is one vast burning bush permeated by the fire of divine power and glory. I want to live in that universe, and I believe that I do. These moments can tell us something about our identity, our value and our purpose but they need someone to make sense of it for us. Something personal. We all have these moments of transcendence, twice a week on average, according to Keltner, but more often than not, it's like a light shining through frosted glass. We might know and feel there's something beyond it, but it's blurry and out of focus. Don't you want to pierce through that frosted glass and see what might lay beyond? That's the promise of Christianity, and most other religions for that matter. Today we tend to be turned off by institutional and formal expressions of religious faith. We generally prefer a more personal, spiritual connection than committing ourselves to external doctrines or religious systems. But these so-called systems, which are often characterised as dry and straitjacketing, are in fact Vibrant paintings of what lies beyond that glass, painted by hundreds of generations of theologians and mystics and artists far smarter and deeper than you or me. You might question whether they're right or not, but they certainly demand engagement. After all, what would be more tragic than spending the rest of your life catching odd glimpses of out-of-focus landscapes and the possibility of bright, illuminating spiritual sunlight might just be around the corner. Casual magic, cage match, is just another manifestation of a very human experience. But this experience comes with a promise. The promise of seeing the unseen, of unravelling the mystery of life, of experiencing the presence of God himself. It may be casual, but it ain't trivial. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.